What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John Rojas. I'm the other one, Chris Stemp. And if you guys are keeping track at home, this is our second consecutive show of 2012. This was high on our... uh, 2012 resolution list for Chris and I to make sure that we do one episode a week. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to keep up with that. You guys would be surprised, but I think we'll be able to pull it off. But we're we're two for two so far, so we're moving we're moving along. I kind of wanted to do a little preface to this interview. This one it, it's this is fantastic. It goes down probably on one of my top five of smart people so far. Um, however, it's very introspective. I made a joke to Roach. It sounds kind of Loveline-esque or, I don't know, something like that. So if you're on the way to the club and just trying to kill some time or something, this probably isn't the time to listen to it. So maybe wait for a rainy day or one of those introspective moments and then really pay attention to this one. This week, we speak to author, doctor, you know, researcher, professional speaker, Dr. Brene Brown. And... She has a bunch of books. The one we kind of hone in on is her most recent, and it's called The Gifts of Imperfection, Let Go of Who You Think You're Supposed to Be, and Embrace Who You Are. So in case you didn't catch all that, basically, this title caught my eye on Amazon. It's just because everybody deals with who they think they're supposed to be, who they really are. Almost everyone wonders at some time in their life, am I being true to myself? And you don't talk a lot about it to other people because it kind of makes you vulnerable, right? Like, am I being emotional or whatever? But everybody does it. Everybody should do it. And she's great at explaining why you should, why you should be okay with it, 
why it's important for you to spread these ideas to your friends. So this is really, really an episode that I want you to you know, tell your friend about, tell your loved ones about. I wish this could get out to a million people. Unfortunately, we're not that popular yet, but she also does a great TED Talk, and that is a little more popular, so also tune in to that. Let me give you a little background on Brene. She is a member of the research faculty at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work, and she spent the past 10 years studying a concept that she calls wholeheartedness. As I kind of alluded to, she talks about your vulnerabilities as a person, the feeling of shame you might get, and she defines shame in a way that you probably have never thought about, although you felt it. She's very good at vocalizing these things. So I encourage you to to pay attention here and really kind of delve into to yourself. She's got a lot of other things. I mean, she's been on numerous TV shows, magazines. She's been on Oprah. And this is a really cool one. She was named one of the 50 most influential women of 2009. That's pretty huge. I mean, I don't know. So we were really lucky to get her on the show, and I feel really lucky to be able to to bring this to you. Roach, as we mentioned, these things hit close to home for a lot of people. What did you find specifically interesting or introspective about her book, her talks, and her interview? You know, for me, this was easy. She mentions how vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity And, you know, she also goes into people wanting connection and community. And I I know I've mentioned this to you before. I'm going to give a little plug out to to Jamie's website, immaculatize.com. And what it really is, is it's a community that I became part of that's based all around accomplishing goals and being creative. And I do have to say that, you know, all I could think about when she was talking about that was how I became part of that and, and started doing that. And it just, you know, brightens my day being able to do creative stuff, even when I'm not being able to do it with my job. So to hear her talk about creativity and that kind of stuff, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And let me jump in here because some people at home might be going, I'm not creative. I, I, I go to work. I do my job. I have my family. Like I have a lot of stuff on my plate. Where does creativity fit in for me? She... I think hits the nail on the head when she said, everybody's creative. Every single person has these creative abilities. You just have to be willing to dive into them. It's hard work. Again, speaking on vulnerability, when you put yourself out there creatively, you are in essence saying who you are and you might be showing it to other people. And that's tough, but it really is a great step into moving in the right direction. Again, just soak it all in. Think about how it can benefit you and, as John mentioned, your community. You can be that method of change just in your small circle, at work, anything like that. So, so stoked for this interview. As I mentioned last episode, I can't thank you guys enough for helping us out, going to our website, clicking our Amazon banner and making your purchases through Amazon on there. Chris, just speechless, you know, they bought thousands of dollars worth of stuff over December And it definitely helped us keep our lights on, our hosting up, all that kind of stuff. So again, thank you guys very much from the bottom of our hearts. And now we'll go ahead and turn it over to Brene Brown. Yes, let's do it. Okay, great. The first thing I did want to say is we. this is probably episode number 50 or something. We've talked to a ton of people, and wow. I'm not even kidding. Your book and your TED Talk were two of the things that fascinated me the most, and I'm, I've am i been so excited to talk to you, so I really appreciate you being on the show. 
Oh my God, that means a lot to me. Thank it's, you. Seriously. And I, I think a lot of things you talk about touch close to home. And, you know, I, I basically came across the title of your book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And then I really like the subtitle, Let Go of Who You Think You're Supposed to Be and Embrace Who You Are. And then after checking that book out and listening to your, your TED Talk, I saw your other book. You know, I thought it's just me, but it isn't. And so basically, I'm sure our listeners can gather just by those two titles a lot of what you do is kind of take things that everybody internalizes them and you make them well known and make people know, you know, it's okay to have these vulnerabilities and these these thoughts and these judgments, but everybody has them. Is that kind of a good good way to put it? Yeah, it is. It's a perfect way to put it, actually. And I think the further along I get in my career, the more I realize that um, so much of what I do is languaging the experiences and the emotions that we all have that we that have never had words wrapped around them. So I think that's exactly what I do. I mean, for me, you know, if I give a talk or a lecture and I'm talking to people afterward, I I used to, I think early in my career, I used to like wince a little bit when people would say, I knew everything that you said before you said it. <laughs> I used to think. Oh, crap. Um, that's not good. <laughs> but now I think I've come to the understanding that what they're saying is that I that that all resonated with me, that I got ex- I knew exactly what you're talking about. I just didn't think anyone really, you know, put it out there and had language for it. So I do think that's exactly what I do. Right. And and like you said, it resonates with people, but they don't know other people have the same thoughts, the same insecurities. I think that that's one of the things that's most impressive about, especially the way you kind of verbalize it. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think we know that other people have the exact same experiences, and it's just part of the human experience. As more and more neurobiology research becomes available and accessible. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really starting to understand is that a lot of what I talk about from belonging, love, courage, worthiness, shame, a lot of the emotional experiences that I talk about happen in a place within the brain that has no access to language. So these feelings that we have and these really overwhelming emotional experiences really don't have words. Um, um, one of the, you know, it's interesting because let's take shame, for instance. We'll just go, we'll just go full on for the big guns. There we go. <laughs> um, here's shame, this, you know, absolutely universal experience, the most primitive human emotion we all experience. Um, a lot of psychologists and sociologists call it the master emotion. Yet we can do, I can talk to 5,000 people in an audience. And I can talk about shame and I can describe how it works, how it makes us feel small, that we're not good enough. We all know that warm wash. And then, and I'll talk for two hours about something. At the end, what everyone says is the same. I had no idea that that feeling had a name and I had no idea that's what shame was. You know, it was just kind of this faceless gremlin that's constantly whispering my ears trying to undo everything I'm trying to get done. I think it's helpful. I wish I, I wish there was just a fancy, maybe y'all, y'all are the smart people podcast. So <laughs> maybe y'all could come up with like a good name for what it is that I do. Cause like, I don't know what it is. It's like, it's really about 
languaging things for some right. weird reason. I'm stuck on that. Right. No, I agree. And actually, it's interesting you brought that up because I wanted to kind of dive into the subject of why people think that other people are so concerned with them. Like if you walk into a room of a hundred people, what, why do you, why does everybody think the whole room's looking at them? Cause my dad always says, he says, people pay way less attention to you than you think they do. And that was one of the things I really, I mean, I know you touch on that. I kind of just want to open that up to you, but what do you call that? What insight do you have on that? What do you hear from other people? Anything you got on that one? So I know a lot about that because it's kind of the, it, it drills, you know, you're dropping down into the heart of what I study and talk about. And your dad's completely right. Um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I can't remember who it's from, so they won't hold me to accountable. There's some <laughs> quick quote that says, um, in my 20s and 30s, I worried about what everyone thought. In my 40s and 50s, I stopped worrying about what people think. And then in my 60s, I realized no one was really even thinking about me to begin with. Um, Here's where we have to start with that. We are absolutely hardwired for connection. Um, it is why we're here. And when I say we're hardwired, I don't mean that like in a new agey sense. I mean like we are neurobiologically at a cellular level wired to be in connection with other people. I love that. I love that. That's how I, I sorry, not to cut you off, but that's just what no, yeah. I believe in. And it's so tough, but keep going. No, it's we're wired for it. And when there is a lack of connection, when there's disconnection, there's always suffering. I don't care whether we're talking about in a personal relationship, in an organizational culture, in a family. When there's disconnection, there's always struggle, always suffering, because we're hardwired for it. So what shame is, is shame is the fear that there's something about us that makes us unworthy of being in connection. And that becomes a powerful driving force that here I am hardwired for connection. I have to be in it. It, it. it gives purpose and meaning to my life, but I'm pretty imperfect and I'm pretty, you know, I've got some, you know, some, some inadequacies some flaws, whatever you want to call them. Um, and so what this driving consuming fear is, if you see something about me that you don't approve of, or you don't like, I'm going to be unworthy of connection with you. And that's going to be painful for me. And so that whole idea of, you know, it's, I talk with my girlfriends about this all the time. I'll give you a total example. Um, you know, you're in the pool and I'm in Texas, so we're always in a pool, <laughs> um, especially during the summer. So you're in the pool and every woman in the whole world, you know, with the exception of maybe four supermodels knows the stress of having to get out of the pool and the timing of that. Wow. Like you're looking both ways on the deck. You're like, okay, this guy's at 44 paces. This person's at 23, but she's facing East. I can be out of the pool in 2.4 seconds and wrapped in a towel on my cover up. So, wow. you know, and the truth is no one's looking. And the only reason why people might look is because you're like hauling ass out of the pool and wrapping yourself up like a tornado in a blanket. Right. But if you're being normal, no one, you know, everyone else has got their own stuff going on. But what drives that kind of idea that we're always being evaluated and watched is our need for connection, our need and our fear of disconnection, which is shame, our fear that our belonging, just like we're wired for, we're hardwired for connection, we're also love and belonging are irreducible needs of men, women, and children, period. 
that's just, in my opinion, based on my research and everything I know, truth, that love and belonging, irreducible needs. And so again, with the, with the, the fear that creeps up at, uh, in us is that I'm going to do something or forget to do something or be a certain way, or you're going to find out something about me that makes me unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. I think a lot of it is our need to be connected and believe that we're good enough. And the, the directional relationship between kind of that always thinking that we're in the spotlight when we're not is the more sense of enoughness that we have, the more that we believe that we're enough, the more we can embrace what makes us imperfect and vulnerable and believe that, that despite all those imperfections and vulnerabilities, we're enough and we're worthy of love and belonging. The more we move in that direction, the less we are convinced that everyone's watching. Now, you speak about that concept of I am enough. Um, can you explain how does a person eventually come to realize that they're enough? And what are some steps that people can take to help them get nudged in that direction? I mean, that's, that's a very, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome saying, like to, to be able to say, hey, I'm enough. But how does one know or what does it truly mean to be enough to yourself? Well, that was the question I asked, you know, six years of doing shame research, and I realized that I put a theory into the academic literature about what shame, shame is, what shame resilience is, and but I realized that in all of that interviewing, I had access to data that answered a different question and a, a kind of more profound question in some ways for me, and that is, in the midst of all this interviewing about scarcity and shame and fear, I came across many, many people, um, not the majority, unfortunately, but a, a great a great number of people who, despite living in this culture of kind of scarcity and fear, somehow managed to believe that they were enough. Um, and so that's when I went back into the research asking the question kind of that you're asking, and that is, what does that mean and what does that look like? And it is a great, you know, it is a great saying, but it, is there anything behind it that's specific and tangible that we can get our hands around and kind of emulate? So... What's interesting is if you took the people I interviewed, and I talk about this in the, in the TED Talk, and I, I, you break them into two categories, people who had a deep belief in their, in their lovability. They believed they were, you know, they, they had a deep sense of love and belonging. And you took a group of, the second group of people who struggled for it um, and really didn't operate from a place of believing they were enough. The only difference between those two groups of people is that people who felt a deep sense of belonging simply believed that they were worthy of love and belonging. So the question for me became a question of worthiness. What does that mean to believe that you're worthy of love and belonging? And what I found is what I write about in The Gifts of Imperfection, there were very specific choices I guess that's the best word, really, that these folks made every day practices that they engaged in that were tangibly different than the lives that the other folks led. So, for example, I'll give one that's related, you know, to all of us, um, creativity. One way we start to cultivate a belief in our own worthiness, a belief that we're enough, is every single person in that category engaged in creativity, practiced some kind of creativity. For me, that was, you know, personally, 
very difficult to get my head around because I was one of the, I'm one of those people before I did this research, I was one of those people who often said, like, I don't do creativity. I'm not a creative person. Um, and almost because I'm kind of a, a worker kind of person, um, almost dismiss creativity as a little bit flaky and self-indulgent. You know, I would say things like, now, you know, someone said, hey, Brene, do you want to go to this photography class or do you want to scrapbook with us? And I'm like, oh, that's really cute. And you have your little ART, but I have a J-O-B, <laughs> and you do your little art project, and I'm going to be over here working. And what I realized in doing this research is that there is no such thing as creative people and not creative people. There are only people who exercise their creativity and people who don't. And more importantly, that unused creativity is not benign. Hmm. It doesn't just dissipate in us. It metastasizes into judgment, like I had, fear, grief, all kinds. Of, it plays out in our lives. It shows up in our work lives. It shows up in a lot of different ways. I mean, one of the things I've been doing a lot of this last year is a lot of work with large organizations, I mean, Fortune 100 companies, you know, saying, asking me to come in and talk about wholeheartedness and worthiness and vulnerability as it relates to innovation and creativity. And how this pulls back is that without vulnerability, without a sense of worthiness, creativity is impossible. Right. I mean, when people, when people tell me failure is not an option, then my, my response now is that neither is innovation. Yeah. Because it- to to risk and innovate is inherently vulnerable. Absolutely. So, the, the whole part about, you yeah. know, being creative and putting art out there, you kind of have to let go. If you, you know, paint something or sculpt something, you're trusting that other people are going to enjoy it and not really worried that people are going to think something about you and that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where you really do have to let go of what other people think, you know, create what you want to create, what makes you happy. And there's other people out there who are going to enjoy it as well. That's exactly right. And then that translates, I mean, we don't think about this as much in kind of organizational culture, but it absolutely plays out in at work all the time. I mean, you know, to put an idea, I, I did a, a really interesting, um, I, I did a talk for 50 CEOs from Silicon Valley and the other person presenting, I was very intimidated because I was just very intimidated, um, felt very vulnerable ended to like every, like your dad, I should have had a talk with your dad before that because <laughs> I did feel like everyone was watching and waiting for me to like screw up because I, that's not my background. Right. But the guy who was also presenting that day, he was on the cover of Fast Company magazine the month that we were presenting for being a disruptive innovator. And when we were talking, I asked him and he had no idea what I studied or did. I said, what is the one thing that you think gets in the way of innovation more than anything in a corporate culture? And he said, well, it doesn't really have a name, or at least if it does, I don't know it. It's, but it's this fear of being laughed at and put down. Right. And so creativity is necessary in every aspect in our lives. So that's one of the guideposts that these folks had in common. Um, cultivating play and rest, playing more taking care of ourselves in terms of sleeping and resting. Um, this is something that folks who had that sense of being enough, wholeheartedness, had in common. On the other side, you saw folks like myself, who I'm kind of a reformed, new, wholehearted person, I'm working at it, um, who, rather than playing and resting, we're folks who 
look at exhaustion as a status symbol. I read that in your book, and I was actually going to touch on that because I know people that go both ways. And the thing about, you know, I've been at the, the company where the boss says, you know, you're not allowed to leave before I do, and he's there till 10, not because he's getting all that work done, but because that makes him seem like the most important guy at the company. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, you know, I had the idea to... I had the idea to over to eavesdrop on conversations um, when I was doing this work, and I rode up and down until I was so nauseous I couldn't do it anymore. Um, in an elevator at one of the big buildings in downtown Houston, just listening to people talk, and, and a building where there were a lot of law practices, and the conversations were obscene. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, oh, what time did you leave last night? <laughs> I left at one. When did you leave? Oh. Dude, I didn't leave. <laughs> yeah. I just I slept here. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is that it is, it becomes a status symbol. And it's not just incorporate in the corporate milieu. Like, you know, if I walked up to a group of friends, um, you know, PTO friends at my son's school and they said, How are you? And I said, oh, you know, I'm doing really great. Um, well rested. I don't have really more work than I can handle. I'm taking care of myself. Taking a little doubt, you know, it beat me up it's everywhere. You've talked to a ton of people. You've interviewed, done a lot of research. In your professional and personal opinion, if you can't be creative or are held back creatively in your job, is that something that people should get out of and look for something that they can be creative? I mean, even if it's a, a great, well-paying job, um, I, you always hear the term, you know, soul-sucking job. And I look at it that way, where if you can't be creative at your job, eventually your your entire soul just gets sucked out of you. Yeah, and I think I use the term soul-sucking job. Yes. I have a chapter in on meaningful work, and I actually kind of talk about this a little bit. And I have mixed feelings, like the, the passionate, emotional side of me, which is a big side of me, um, wants to say, yes, leave. But I'm 46, and... I've seen just enough, you know, for me, life to know that that can almost be a dangerous mandate because, you know, I have a lot of friends who, what if you have a child who has got a chronic illness and your soul-sucking job has got great insurance and that's how you pay that and that's how you keep your family well or, you know, I have had friends who have jumped off a cliff, you know, they've made the leap and said, I have a soul-sucking job. I want to do creative work. I want to do, I want to do meaningful work. And they've done it, and it's worked out well. And I've had friends who've jumped, and it's, it's, been, it's been dangerous and hard. And I guess what I would say is that when we talk about engagement and work and meaning and creativity, I think some of us, I think some people can figure out a way to get your get their meaning, their creativity from the same place they get their paycheck. And other people have done incredible jobs where they have a job that may not bring them full meaning or unleash their greatest creativity, but they have other parts of their lives where they do that. And I don't think that's any less meaningful. You know, like there's a book that I quote um, from a lot called The Slash Effect, and it's about people who put together multiple careers and do multiple things, a rabbi who's also a stand-up comic, a longshoreman who's also a documentary filmmaker. You know, I think as we move into this new idea of kind of 
co-creation and a, a more creative, more creativity, I guess, a creative generation and more creativity and, and hopefully, hopefully infused in all jobs. I think sometimes you can get that, but just because you have to be an accountant during the day and you really don't love it, but you make jewelry at night, doesn't mean you're an accountant with a little hobby. It means you're an accountant and a jeweler, and both of those are equally important. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you have friends who've done both. And I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit, but um, I worked in a finance you know, field for about five years and it was kind of the long hour things and talk about how long you've been there. And, um, but I never thought I was creative. It was kind of what you talked about earlier. I was just like, my brother's the creative one. I like play sports and try to make money and that's just what I do. But for some reason I wasn't getting this fulfillment. So I did the thing where I pretty much completely left. Um, didn't have a job for a while really, but started this podcast, found a little creative voice, and now for the first time I'm at a company that is way outside of pretty much what I went to school for, what I thought I would do, and it is the right path. So I've kind of been in both places where, you know, had money, didn't like it, didn't have money, didn't like it, and now, you know, and now <laughs> yeah. there's a, a, a zone in the middle. So I think, yeah. you know, you got to take your own your own track towards it, maybe. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of times when people, some of the most creative people I know and people who are really exercising their creativity are in jobs that you would think are completely void of creativity. You know, I think, I don't think it's always about something that most of us literally identify as creative arts, you know, photography, painting. You know, it can be creative problem solving, just, I think the ability to express yourself, have some autonomy and feel seen and heard in terms of your ideas. I think that's creative engagement. No, I like that. You know, and you've mentioned this a couple of times. I don't think we touched on it enough because it is also a little subtitle to your book, you know, your guide to a wholehearted life and wholehearted is kind of a genre of person, I guess, that you you created. And I really like it. It, it stuck with me, especially through your, your TED Talk and everything, because you talk about what makes a wholehearted person. And one of the things that really, really stuck out to me is they embrace vulnerability. And that's mm -hmm. so that's I don't know, it's so strong or powerful for me because it's so bizarre. Like, why would you ever want to like being vulnerable? It's it's stupid, right? Like, in my opinion, it's totally stupid. Yeah. And I and yeah. you, you talk about it. You, you were the same way. You were like, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, beat this vulnerability down. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to solve it. And that's the exact approach I would take. No joke. But the way you verbalized it made me a believer in a 20 minute speech or whatever. So I was hoping you could kind of tell a little bit more about, um, you know, embracing vulnerability. Yeah. It's so funny because, um, this is my nervous laughter. Um, <laughs> I don't like it either. Um, I guess we have to start with whole, I mean, wholeheartedness was a name that I gave to the group of people who really felt this deep sense of love and belonging, who had a lot of the three things I think would define them is immense courage total engagement and a clear sense of purpose and meaning. And I wanted to be that. But unfortunately, what I found, really, when I thought I asked the question, like, what do the wholehearted have in common? 
I was hoping like hell that the answer was going to be, they're all shame researchers. And then I was thinking, boom, I'd be it. But the answer was that they all embraced vulnerability and I couldn't believe it. Um, (laughs) Because I became a researcher specifically to avoid vulnerability. Exactly. Um, but let me, I guess the easiest way to start this is to bust the two big vulnerability myths. The first is that vulnerability is weakness. We live in a culture that abhors weakness. We hate weakness in people. We don't like it in ourselves. And so we've kind of convinced ourselves that being vulnerable is about being weak. But when you ask people, like we ask, hundreds of people. What is vulnerability to you? What is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And what you come up with very quickly and what you hear very quickly has nothing to do with vulnerability, with with weakness. So let me give you some examples. Um, I'm going to read, and I haven't published this information yet. It's actually going into a book that is going to be turning in the next couple of weeks. Um, So vulnerability is sharing an idea at work, taking accountability for something that went wrong, calling a friend whose child just died, being with my wife while she's in chemotherapy, initiating sex with my wife, initiating sex with my husband, knowing my kids getting pushed around at school and knowing that I'm doing everything I can, but he's got to figure out some of it on his own. You know, vulnerability uh, is, you know, loving someone who's struggling. Loving anyone, period. Right. I mean, I, you you use the term saying I love you first. I mean, how, how much more yeah. vulnerable can you get, right? Yeah. I mean, that it's the big one, you know, to come out, you know, if you really look at what vulnerability is, if you look at every example, starting a podcast. Yeah. When you had no idea. I mean, I read all your bios. No yeah. idea probably what you were doing. Not a clue. <laughs> the first episode's no embarrassing to listen to. <laughs> yeah. No idea if you'd be successful. But doing it, right? Right. And that's vulnerability. It has nothing to do with weakness. It's all about the extent to which we are willing to be vulnerable is the most accurate measure of our depth of courage. Do you see, especially with, with people in America, that this is that we're going to become more vulnerable? And just to let you know, my verbal crutch, that word is very hard for me. You can barely say <laughs> I, I don't know why. Um, but... You talk about people being selectively numb and we're over-medicated, we're over-addicted, we're in debt, everything out there, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. Do you see this getting better for us? I see people sick and tired of being afraid. Right. I would define the last, you know, and I think I read that y'all are maybe in your late 20s. Yes. You know which is very formative because I would define the last decade as a decade absolutely of scarcity and fear. Never enough. Never good enough, never rich enough, never powerful enough, never promoted enough, never enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is interesting to me is I think people are getting, are, we have grown weary of that. And I think courage, I do, I think courage is going to be the new thing. I mean, not in a sad way, but I think at some point there's that quote, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think when people understand vulnerability and start having conversations about it, what I think we'll see is like small campfires lighting up all over, you know, a dark area. We'll see people start changing their immediate cultures, like our culture, my family culture, our work culture, 
you know, our culture at church or the culture of this school, that we'll start to see shifts in smaller cultures. And at some point, I think that will hit critical mass. But let me tell you, the work will be tremendous for this reason, that scarcity culture depends on three things. A prominence of people struggling with shame, which we absolutely have right now. A pandemic of disengagement, which I see everywhere I go, whether I'm speaking, you know, at a, a huge corporation or I'm at a school or I'm speaking with a group of parents, disengagement is the issue. So we, you know, take, and it takes this comparison. Like we are a very comparing culture. Not only do I feel like I don't have enough, I want to know exactly how much you're getting. What will have to happen is there will have to be enough leaders in, within families, schools, and organizations, enough leaders who are saying, I'm going counterculture on this. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of what that looks like. One of the things that happens in a culture of scarcity is a mantra becomes fun, fast, and easy. If it's not fun, fast, and easy, I'm not doing it. Well, I don't believe in that at all. As a professional, as a person, as a mom, I have a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old. I don't believe in that. So one of the things that to codify that counterculture message in our house is we have this great plaque that hangs. It's big. It's 20 by 20 that says, we can do hard things. And I'm going to work every day in the culture of my family with my husband, Steve, to send different messages that are coming. You know, um, I tell my kids, you don't have to win your heat in the swimming. You don't have to score the most goals in the soccer game. What you do have to do is work hard and show up. And what I see leaders at work doing is coming forward and saying, screw the exhaustion metric. We're done with this. I'm going to ask you to take care of yourself because when you're here, I need you to be engaged. My God, I would love to see and, that happen. <laughs> yeah. And they're slowly, turn, you know, maybe the whole organization doesn't go, but maybe one team goes and then maybe a couple teams go. But what I see is I see it, people hungry for engagement, hungry for clarity, hungry for courage. But that is not going to be a wake up one day and everything shifts. It's going to be a lot of us, you doing interviews with interesting people, talking about ideas, but whether people will agree with my ideas or anyone's ideas, you're putting out a respectful, engaged discourse. That's how we change the world. So I do think it's going to change, but it's going to take critical mass. I definitely agree with that, like that idea, and hope to be one of those people, you know, that could spread that. So, um, and, and I know you do it well, and that's why we want to speak with you. I know we've gone over on time, but one last thing, and I hope this isn't giving too much away because obviously we want people to purchase your book, but one of the best things I have ever read in a book was at the end of your book, you say, you say, what's the greater risk letting go of what people think or letting go of how I feel, what I believe and who I am. And that's so, it's so crazy because you, at the time you're not going to think that, right? You walk in or you say you get out of that pool, you're going to be constantly wondering about how you feel and what other people think. But the greater risk really uh, on the grand scheme of things is not at all that. It's the fact that you put all this energy into worrying about it rather than, you know, yourself and bettering and things like that. Absolutely. I, I, I think... This external focus that we talked about from like the earlier, earliest part of our conversation about your dad through right now, um, all comes from the courage to be who we are, the courage to put how we feel and what we need and believe first, 
all stems from this idea of worthiness, and it all stems from the idea of practicing, you know, putting into practice these ideas. Like every time I go into a difficult situation where I really want to practice authenticity, I have to do my whole little mantra. I have to do a whole little like routine in my head. And one of the things that, one of the reasons I don't like the fun, fast, and easy axiom is that every single one of the things that the wholehearted group of people talked to me about was a practice. There's a quote in my book that says, you learn courage by couraging from um, a theologist. And I think we learn how to be authentic and wholehearted by practicing it and screwing it up and getting back up and doing it again. Um, and in order to do that, I think we have to have connection with a few people in our lives who, while we're down on the ground, won't kick us. We'll just put a hand out and help us up and say, dude, you tried and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Brene, again, thank you so much for being on the show. You were such a joy to talk to. It was a lot of fun on both Chris and I's side. Um, your book, again, The Gifts of Imperfection, is available at bookstores, on Amazon. Did you have any websites or anything that you wanted to plug? You mentioned that you had a, a book coming out soon. Can you can you give our listeners anything about that? Well, I have a book coming out in September, and it's going to be all about the power of vulnerability. Perfect. The whole book is on vulnerability, so I'm really excited. Um, title yet to be announced, but if you want to stay... Um, stay in touch with what's going on, you can go to bernabrown.com and you can find links to my blog and all kinds of stuff. And I really appreciate my time with y'all. It was a lot of fun. It was. It was great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. See, we promised you an awesome interview and I think we completely delivered on that. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah, and I also wanted to say we were lucky enough to get one copy of her book sent directly from her. Again, it's The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. Normally, we send these books out brand new. I'm not going to lie. John and I both read this one. It might be a little marked up, but we want to give this to you. And hopefully, if you're not the winner, go buy it. But in order to win it, just do something. Contact us, email us, Facebook us some way or another. And we'll get it to, to one person. So that's our gift to you for for this week. Call Chris on his cell phone. It's 571. And if you're listening to this, you probably found this on iTunes or something similar, maybe our website. Please, please head over to iTunes, subscribe there, rate us, leave us a comment. It helps us out. It allows other people to find the show. And that's ultimately what we want iTunes, Smart People Podcast, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Be sure to tune in next week. Another great guest.